If you'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at uh, verses 14 through 16 today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. We have, we have been given a treasure in the gospel. And really, Paul has asked us, is asking us in this passage, telling us, even, even in the establishment of overseers, the establishment of deacons, it's about guarding that treasure. It's about guarding the gospel. And today we see very clearly what this treasure is. Paul explains very clearly what this gospel is, really the pinnacle of this letter. What we see today is essential to the entire letter. It is the heart of the entire letter. Paul explains his reason for writing the epistle. He, he, in particular, everything that he said thus far, he culminates right here. But he also goes further by preparing the reader to, for what he's going to say. Everything that he's going to say in the rest of the letter points back to this right here, the gospel. We, we've said it before, we're going to say it today. Our lives are built upon the gospel, but our lives are built upon doctrine surrounding that gospel. We have truth to build our life upon, and truth matters. And, and everything, that, everything that we're called to do, everything we're commanded to do, no matter what the cost is, no matter how we suffer, no matter what, no matter what it is, it all makes sense if we understand the gospel. If we fully understand the depth of our sin, the weight of that sin, the cost of that sin, if we really understand how costly our sin was, that, that Jesus Christ, though He had no sin, bore our sin for us, that we might be called the righteousness of God. Philippians 2, have this attitude that was also in Christ, that though He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. Christ Jesus emptied Himself on our behalf. Therefore, the response to that, guess what? Anything that we're called to empty ourselves of, whether it's pride, finances, health, security, freedoms, it all makes sense. Why? Because Christ Jesus first emptied Himself for our behalf, on our behalf. Even to the point, it says in Philippians 2, of death on a cross, the most humiliating form of death, not an easy death, not a comfortable death, not a painless death, death on a cross. He paid the death that a criminal would pay. Why? To purchase freedom for all who those for those who would believe. To pay the ransom. Matthew 28, he, Jesus did not come to be served but to serve and to what? To give his life as a ransom. To literally purchase the freedom of sinners held captive to sin. Slaves to sin the Bible talks about redemption. Redemption is the purchase of a slave, of a prisoner. And what Timothy is doing here is he's impressing on the he's impressing uh, on upon Timothy, but also upon you and I a view of the church that that is foundational to this entire letter. Our entire existence, if you will, is built upon the gospel and the proclamation and the preservation and the defense of the gospel. It's not only done through what we say, it's done through how we live, and that's really the rest of the letter. The rest of the letter, Timothy is, Paul is going to explain to Timothy and explain you know, how we live in relationship to the gospel. Everything that he says, he's going to say in the rest of this letter, is pointed back to the pinnacle right here, and it's the gospel. And it's ironically, it's a right view of the church. It's not an individualistic approach. It's not a, I'll do my own thing, you do your own thing, we'll all be Lone Ranger Christians. No, it's a corporate 
view of the church, a togetherness of the church. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24, do not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but, but, but come together, why? To encourage one another so long as it's called today. You go to Romans 12, there's a one-anotherness to the body of Christ. It's not an individualistic thing, it's a one-anotherness. We're a body, we're a family, we're a flock, we're a people. We're, a, we're a, a priesthood of believers, if you will, as Peter says. And, and we need, as, a, as, a, as Christians, we need a right view of the church, not only corporately, but, but individually. Many, many have suggested that, that what Paul writes here may be somewhat of a commentary on what he wrote in Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29. Let me, let me read those passages and li- listen, l- listen to this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. You see, what he, you, see the, you see the otherness mindset of Christ? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body. Again, he's looking back to the gospel. He's looking back to the death, burial, resurrection. He's looking back to that which Christ has done on his behalf. And he's responding, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Think about that right there. He's, he, really, what he's saying there, it's a continuation. We continue to suffer. Why? To continue to bring glory to the gospel. God's people are asked to even suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer. There's probably nothing that brings greater glory and an honor to the gospel of Jesus Christ than a believer who's willing to suffer and maintain allegiance, who's willing to give up of his own freedoms and maintain allegiance to Christ. And Paul is saying, I do my part. The question for all of us today, unfortunately, I I mean, I wish I could come to you and say, hey, come to Christ and everything's going to be hunky-dory. You just, you know, just eat, drink, and be merry the rest of your life. It's just not the case. Those who come to the cross, guess what? You're called to suffer. Paul says, I'm doing my part. You, you, the question becomes for me and, and, and us is, what are we doing? Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. You see, again, for others' benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery of which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has manifested to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And here's the mystery, Christ in you. Literally, He's in you, believer. He's in you. The hope of glory. Ephesians 1.13 says that, that literally God has sealed you, believer, in the, in the indwellment, in the dwelling in you of the Holy Spirit. He seals you. That, that word there, it would be, it would, it literally, it, it, would, it would validate the authenticity. It would validate the message. You'd fold over, literally, you would, you've seen in some movies, you'd fold over a letter. On the back of that letter, they would place their seal that seal, when it was delivered, it wasn't broken. If it was broken, maybe the altar was, maybe the message was altered. But when you got that letter, you'd look and the seal was there. Literally, the Holy Spirit is the seal. It's the promise. You're mine. That's what the Holy Spirit declares in you. You're mine. You belong to me. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may, listen, here's the goal so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Complete in Christ, maturity. If you go to Ephesians 4, he talks about all the giftings that he's given out. And here was the point, that, that, that they would present, that they would equip the saints, that's believers, to do the work of the ministry, and that they would reach maturity so that they would not be tossed around by every wind and trickery of doctrine. It's not simply getting people saved, it's growing people up into the maturity of that salvation so that our kids, so our kids' parents, you and I, we're not blown around by every wind and trickery of doctrine. This, this is 1 Corinthians, we'll see it on Easter Sunday. 
1 Corinthians 15, 58, when we're, when we're settled in the gospel, when we're sure of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says, therefore be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the, God, of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your work is not in vain. Why? There's a resurrection coming. There's a payday coming for those who believe. Listen, he says, for this purpose, verse 29, also I labor, striving, striving. And not, not, none of this let go and let God. None of this I'm saved and I'll just coast the rest of my life. I'm in, I can just take it easy. No, no, for this reason I labor and strive. It's the same thing in 2 Peter 1. Peter says to all believers, now applying all diligence, add to your faith. And he goes on to say, you know what he says? Grow up. Why? He says, if these things are yours, verse 8, and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the working of God. Grow. Grow up, believer. It's our responsibility as believers to grow up. To know the gospel to know the Word of God, to be able to defend the Word of God. It's not like, hey, I'll just call Chris and get an answer. I'll call Dr. Enns and get an answer. No, we have a responsibility individually to know, to be able to defend the gospel, to defend the Word of God. 1 Peter 3.15, but set apart, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a hope for, that you have, to give a defense for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. That's a command for all believers. For this purpose I labor and strive according to His power, again, which works in me. The mystery is that Christ is in us. We have a responsibility, and that's what I want us to see today. You, you, you see just one point. The gift of being adopted into God's family comes with a responsibility. To live individually and corporately in ways that accurately defend, portray, and proclaim the gospel. We have a responsibility. And, and how we the point is this, how we live our lives individually and how we live our lives corporately when we gather have a tremendous impact on our ability to reach the lost with the gospel the progress of the gospel is greatly hindered or helped by how we live our lives good and bad in spite of what our, you know again in spite of what our culture may say in spite of what many professing believers might even say the church is of utmost importance in the outworking, in the advancement of that gospel. We are here to help you be equipped. I mean, again, we're, we're trying to hire a family pastor, not a youth pastor, not a middle school pastor, not a singles pastor, not a, not a high school pastor, a family pastor to oversee the whole gamut that 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 we would graze, raise up individuals that are mature in Christ, not blown around by every wind and wave of trickery doctrine. This individual will not only disciple children, he's going to have to disciple parents so they can disciple their children. That one of the problems is we have immature Christians trying to raise immature Christians. That's a difficult, that's a recipe for disaster. This individual's job is to assist, come alongside the family in, in not only discipling parents, but teaching them so they can then disciple their, their kids. That's why, that's why we've called it a family pastor. That, that's why we're requiring that this person have a seminary degree. There's a lot at stake. It's more than just fun and games. There'll be fun and games involved, but at the end of the day, I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account on how I steward and shepherded. And, and I'm not going to hang my hat on they had fun. I'm going to hang my hat on we did everything we could to mature them in Christ, that they would be steadfast and immovable. That may not always be fun, but listen to me. When they become 25, 30, 35, 40 years old, and, and they get out of the cocoon of being a high school or middle school, and life really hits them head on, what they believe about God is going to matter, not what games they played as a student. It's going to, theology is going to be what's mattered. Theology. What they believe about God is going to matter. And, and that's our job. And I'm not making any accusations. I, I look around and see other churches doing it well. I want to do it well here. And we're going to do what we can to allocate resources to do it well. But it's a family position. 
Why? Because we have a responsibility to live out the gospel from the youngest to the oldest, a responsibility to live out the gospel as we've been called. And we do that in the context of a church body. The church body plays a role of that. We do that together, one another. And what we see is, and you see it in your handouts, that God has a high view of the church, a high view of the church. You and I, therefore, ought to have a high view of the church. What we do here is not optional. It's not just secondary. It's, it's a, there's a high view placed on the church to defend and protect and proclaim the gospel and to help you be equipped to do that. So we as a church are trying our best we're, to come alongside and do that. And I'm grateful for Chris Thayer and Sarah Thayer who have, who have given themselves to do that for the last five years for nothing. For nothing. They're gladly handing that mantle off. We, we have a huge responsibility as a church to accurately portray and proclaim and defend the gospel in everything we do. Whether you're at work, whether you're playing sports, whether you're at home watching TV, looking on the internet, whatever, it is about the gospel. Everything is taken back in reference to the gospel. And, and we as a culture, I mean, we hear the word grace. We don't like to attach grace to responsibility. But there's a stewardship, there's a responsibility that comes with grace. You don't earn your salvation, but because you have been saved, you respond to that salvation. That's, that's all of Romans 12 through 16. That's all of Ephesians 4 through 6. That's the second half of Galatians, responding to the gospel, responding to what God has done rightly. Even here, the, the, the family, the local church, it's a family of believers. We, we're to conduct ourselves accordingly, not as a business not as a country club, not, not as a YMCA or an entertainment center or some other organization. We're here for truth. We're here to raise people up in truth. And the church is sort of that base operation of the world. We come together regularly. Why? So that we can scatter effectively. To encourage one another. To exhort one another. And with privilege comes responsibility. And at the center, at the center, you see it on your handout, at the center of our responsibility is the advancement of the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. Not, 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 it's not fun and games. We're not messing around. We don't have, it's not optional. It's not, hey, just do whatever you want to do. No, we're here for the support of truth to protect the gospel. Why we exist as a church to defend and proclaim truth. You know, it's not just to hang out. It's not just to have fun. It's not for us to just, hey, let's vote on what we want our mission to be. No, we got a mission. Our commander-in-chief gave us a mission. We, we literally, what he, and he goes on, by common confession. Do you see the unity? Here's what brings us together, a common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. And literally, this is the gospel. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You have the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ right there, very clearly. That is the truth that we are to defend. And the rest of the truths spring from that. That's the center of who we are. And that risen Christ, God himself takes up residence in, in our hearts so that we can do that, to equip us to do that. If you look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, these, these individuals were living in ungodly ways and they were mingling with prostitutes and they were involving with all kinds of stuff. And here's what he says. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
When he says you're not your own, you know what that means? Unfortunately, you don't get to call the shots. You don't get to determine anymore. When, when you accept salvation, when you accept the forgiveness of sin, you know what? You give up lordship of your life. You give it over to Christ. You're his. You're his possession. You're not your own. Listen, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The response to having been bought with a price, glorify God in your body. I'm yours, Lord. I exist to do your bidding. We were saved for God's glory, not ours. And I'm going to say this. I I told Karen the other day, I'm struggling. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for saying this, and I'm going to step on a lot of toes for saying this, but you know what? So be it. Very popular song right now. Here's why we have to be careful of what we listen to and what we read. Very popular song right now. Extremely popular song. I was listening to the radio the other day, and I was like, what what did they just say? Here's, Here's what he says. You didn't want heaven without me, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Like God was lonely? Like he was, he was not whole? Like he was just desperate for, you didn't want heaven, so you, I mean, like he's insufficient? But, but my point is this, do you see who the emphasis is put on? The, that puts the emphasis on me. It puts the emphasis on me. That puts the emphasis on my glory. No, 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 the emphasis is on God's glory. God would have been completely God. He would have been completely himself. He would have not been any less perfect had he not chosen to save me. Bottom line. And, and we have this, we, we, every, you and I, 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 listen, I love to make things about Chris. My feet hit the ground in the morning. You know who, you know, oftentimes my first thought of is Chris. I naturally want to make things about Chris. It's not about Chris. This is about God and His glory. This is about the gospel. I've been bought, and now my job is to do His bidding, my responsibility, and grace. He, and, he, and the point is, He gives me everything I need to do that. It's appropriate. Do I appropriate that? 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that His divine power has given us everything we need in life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness. We're not soldiers who are ill-equipped. And we may not be applying what has been equipped, but we're equipped. And the reality, even that, is that God dwells in those who are, in all, everyone who's a believer, God dwells in you with the goal of bringing Him glory. That, that's 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Or what are... Oh, yeah. We, the church, he says, are the sanctuary of the living God, he says. We're the sanctuary of the living God. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He says, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He dwells in us. In the Old Testament, God's presence dwelt, it was pictured in that tabernacle. It's pictured in the temple. The the picture Paul is making here that you and I, believer, are the temple. Same word in, in 1 Corinthians 6 there where he, he uses the same word that the Old Testament uses for temple. You and I as believers are, te- are temples for God. The God who spoke the world into existence, who is above all and before all, who is sovereign over all, all-powerful, all-knowing, King of kings, Lord of lords, listen to me, dwells inside of you. Power. Truth. That's the glory of the gospel that you and I Wretched sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. That's really what the whole purpose of the book of Leviticus is showing. How do sinners come into the presence of a holy God? And it's, here it is, Leviticus. And ultimately it's pointing to Christ. The Christ, Christ was that perfect lamb who would be sacrificed for our sins. John the Baptist 
sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. They understood what lambs did. Lambs died. They died. Why did Jesus die? To, to make a way for forgiveness for your sin and my sin. There's no other, no other religion makes that claim. Why? Because they're not true. Christ alone, Christianity alone makes that claim because it's true. It's the grace of the gospel. And that is why the gospel is worth defending no matter the cost. Because it is our, you'll see it on your handout, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation. Why would we, why would we defend it at all costs? Because it's our only hope. It's, our, it's, the, it's the only one of its kind. And we said at the beginning of this series, why, where, how does something have value? It has value based on who authored it. Well, guess who authored salvation? God himself authored salvation. We said value comes from, from, from how many of them are. Well, guess what? There's one gospel. One. All those things bring value. And, and what Paul does here is he's saying, focus on the magnificent magnificence of what Christ has done for you in the gospel, in, in our calling. He's calling our response to the gospel literally godliness. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Literally, Christ now dwells in you in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, Christ. I mean, the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you, believer. He now dwells in you. And, and again, promised in Jeremiah 31, promised in Ezekiel 36, fulfilled today in you. And, and our right response to the gospel and this mystery, Paul calls godliness. And again, the idea that we get saved and can live however we want, is, it's a crazy idea. In this letter alone, Paul uses the term godliness nine times. How we live, what he's saying is this, how you and I live as Christians is a huge deal. Rightly responding to having been saved and, and, and literally God dwelling in you in the person of the Holy Spirit is a big deal. That's why he says in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1, But by his doing, by his doing, you were in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. All, everything about my life is, is to be a response to the grace of the gospel. Measured in, in line with, does this promote and, and, and defend and protect the gospel? And Paul calls this response godliness. And you see it on your handout. Godliness means to rightly respond to the gospel in such a way that our lives become God-centered in every aspect. Sanctification is less, and, is, is less and less of Chris, more and more of God. It's John 30. He must increase, I must decrease. That's literally sanctification. Less and less of Chris, more and more of Christ. It, it's a life that is lived, what we're called to, godliness, a life that is lived to the glory of God, God-centered. And, and what we proclaim through our lives is called truth. It's truth. It's built upon truth. The whole truth that God has revealed in His Word, but especially the gospel. That's godliness. Living out the Word and the gospel. gospel that's godliness. And, and all Paul is saying again, he uses that word nine times here. Godliness. The question becomes, is your life, is my life marked by godliness? When people see our lives, do they see, who do they see? Who gets the glory? Everything about our lives, we have been bought with a price. It is all about Christ and the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of who? God. No matter what you're doing, do it to the glory of God. That's what he's saying. We exist for God's glory. We are displays of God's glory. If you were to do a study there all throughout Scripture, you know who God does, you know why God does what He does and who He does it for? To His own glory. To His own glory. 
Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord God, that is my name. I will not share my glory with the northern, nor will I share my praise with images. It says I'm not sharing it. And what we see here in verses 14 through 16, it's the crux and it's the climax of everything that Paul has said and will say in this letter. And here's what I mean by that. You see it on your handout. It's the crux in that it contains the essential truths. Essential truths relevant to everything that Paul writes, the gospel. Central truths. But it's the climax in this. It is the high point of Paul's praise. The gospel. The death, burial, resurrection. Everything was pointed there through all history. You, you, look at, you can look at Galatians. He says, why the law? He says, the law was meant to be a tutor to lead you to Christ. Jesus Christ is the climax. His death, burial, resurrection is the high point of praise for everything. Everything was looking forward to it. Now everything is looking back at it. But it's, it's, the, it's the high point of praise. Everything we do is built upon that gospel. And that's what Paul pictures in verse 16. The full ministry of Christ. His life, his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And you know what he says? The same power, the mystery is this. The same power, resurrection power, lives in you and I. And you know what he's saying? Let that sink in, church. You're to guard that truth. You're the possessor of that truth. Literally, like if I said... You know, Katie, y'all get picked on because y'all sit in the front row. Katie, here's a, here's a briefcase with $20 million in it. Will you defend it? You know what? Here's, here's the point. If, you said, if I said that, would you be careful about who you let guard it? You'd be careful about where you took it? You'd be careful about where you left it? You'd be mindful of it all the times. You wouldn't just let anybody guard it. You're like, hey, I've never met you before. Can you hold this for me a second? got an errand to run. My point is this. That $20 million would have value, would it not? So you'd protect it. You'd be careful about who guarded it. You see the context, and even in overseers and deacons, why God is saying there's such a high standard? Because I'm going to be careful about who I have lead the church. Why? Because they're tasked with guarding and protecting and defending the gospel. And I'm not going to give that just to anybody. Even our leaders, other pastors we hire, another pastor we hire, guess what? They automatically become an elder. There's a high calling on that individual's life. They're not coming in as just another pastor. They're coming in and they're going to be an elder. High calling. Why? But the, the, the responsibility is great. Why the, huge why the huge qualifications? Why so high? Because we're guarding something more precious than a briefcase that has $20 million in it. We're guarding the only possible way for our sins to be forgiven. And the only way for those outside these walls sins to be forgiven. When we go to Costa Rica, we're going with the most precious possession that we could take to Costa Rica. It's the gospel. Their sins forgiven. And, and there's a battle. We, we have to be careful how we live. And, and one of my favorite passages is 2 Timothy chapter 2. I, I think it pictures this so accurately. Listen, listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to read... 13 verses here, so bear with me. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That, that literally, very similar to what he says to Timothy in chapter 4 of, our, of 1 Timothy. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself in as, as an example. Same thing he says here, be strong in the Lord. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That right there, do you understand why it is so important that this individual comes prepared and knows what they defend when we hire this other individual? Why it's so important that we know? Why? Because our job is, we are tasked with passing on truth to the next generation. We're tasked with passing on the gospel and doctrine to other people. If we don't know it ourselves, how are we going to pass it on? We need to know it. But look what he says. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him 
as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. Listen to what he says, though. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. And here's what he says, remember. Risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. You see how the focus is the gospel? For which I, again, why do you suffer hardship, Paul? Because of the gospel. For which I suffer hardship, even the imprisonment as a criminal. Why? Because the gospel. That's how precious it was to Paul. Look, do what you want to me. I'm not, I'm not balking on the gospel. For this reason, I endure all things. Listen, for the sake of those who were chosen. Why does Paul endure? For the gospel. So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with all eternity, with, and, and with it eternal glory. Do, do you see how, what's at stake? Why does Paul suffer well? Not only for them, not only for him, but for those who may obtain the salvation to come. Why, why do you and I live the way we live? Not only, not only to glorify God in our lives, but that we can share the gospel to others and they may be brought into the family of God themselves. That's why it's so important that we protect the gospel at all costs. Listen, he says in verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him, when you come to Christ Jesus and you become a believer, this Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself up for me. Chris Basham died when he came to Christ. If we endure with him, we'll reign with him. That's the hope. If we deny him, he'll deny us also. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. From all of this, and this is where I'm building, and, and, and we're going somewhere with this slowly, I hear you, but we're going somewhere with this. You'll see on your handout there a, a, a circle with a line in the middle of it. Here's what, here's what I want us to do. I, I don't, I'm not looking for, no one's looking at your answer. I, I'm begging you to be honest. I, I'm begging myself to be honest. I want every single person in here to ask themselves an honest, honest question. The focus of my life is what? The focus of your life is what? Right now. Think about that. What's the focus of your life? And here's why this is important. The, how you fill that answer in, whether you realize it or not, determines everything, determines where you're going to spend, how you're going to spend your time, how you're going to spend your resources, how you, what you're going to be focused on, what you're going to think of. It, it revolves around that right there. You, we can lie to each other and we can think people don't see it. Trust me, we see it. Where, where's the focus of your life? And, and what we fill in right there, again, tells us everything about what we believe as well. And here's the reality. You see it in your handout. Doctrine. What we truly believe and about God. That should say about God. And I think Melissa caught that on the handout. Good. About God. Always shows up in actions. What you believe always shows up in actions. Bottom line. Why you do what you do is built upon of belief somewhere. And all throughout the Bible, doctrine and behavior are closely related. E even in the section we just looked at on, on overseers and or elders and deacons, no doctrinal tests. Why? Because their doctrine played out in their life. You could read their doctrine by reading their life. What they believed about God showed up in their life. What they believed about the gospel showed up in their life. It, what we believe, whoever the focus of our life is or whatever it is, that's where our, that's where our actions and that's where our resources are going to go. Why? Because actions, you'll see it in hell now, flow from values. Whatever we value, actions flow from value. I, I, I'm, I'm blessed to be 
the pastor of a church of our size and to watch people go through things that they're going through and they do not waver one second with regards to Christ. Having to explain to their kids some really awful things that, that kids their age shouldn't be having to learn and having to walk. They may have to learn them, but having to deal with them. And I'm amazed they never waver from Christ. Why is that? Because, because they've stored up truths and learned about who God is before that storm came. They're prepared to deal with that. Why? Because who God is isn't up for, isn't up for debate. They don't allow their circumstances to determine who God is. They know who God is before they get in those circumstances. They value God. They believe the gospel wholeheartedly. And behavior, regardless of what we say, behavior is built upon doctrine and it's built upon values. Whether it's Romans, whether it's Ephesians, whether it's Colossians, whether it's Hebrews, those writers will, will give their doctrine at the beginning and then it'll say, therefore... That, that what he's saying is because of the gospel, because of everything you've done, all of this I'm about to say makes sense. But all of this will not make sense until you really, really believe the gospel. Suffering makes no sense until you realize what the gospel means. Giving over yourselves, wasting your life, if you will, on other people and other things makes no sense until you realize that God's going to give our lives back to us in a resurrection. Makes no sense without the gospel. And what we want, whether it's us or our kids or whatever, we want behavior change, but we don't want to take the time to understand the doctrine. And long-term behavior is not going to take change, isn't going to take place until you get changed the beliefs. you got to get the doctrine. You know, the things that... I, we're, we're, we're meeting with some middle school guys on the... Second Sunday of every month. Not the, probably not the most fun studies, but I'm trying to prepare them for life. I'm trying to prepare them with solid doctrine about who God is and who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is and all that. Why? So they'll be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So they won't be tossed around by every wind and wave and church or doctrine. Real life stuff. The gospel. That their, their lives would be built on around the king, God's kingdom and its advancement, not, not their own lives. And is Christ, the question is this, is Christ in the gospel the center of everything we do? I want it to be. Individually, corporately. Are we willing to do anything, anything, at any cost to promote, protect, and proclaim the gospel? Individually, you have to ask yourself that question. Corporately, we have to ask ourselves that question. The rest of what we see in 1 Timothy is going to be an overflow of the gospel. And if we don't understand the gospel, if it's not foremost, the rest of what we see ain't going to make sense. We have nothing more valuable and essential and sufficient to our lives outside of the gospel. And that is what Paul says here reminding us of the gospel and its sufficiency. And it's sufficient for everyone. That's the beauty of, of Hebrews 4. He says, you do not have a high priest, who cannot, high priest who cannot sympathize with you, but rather you have a high priest that can sympathize you with... Be, why? Because in every way that you're going to be te tested and tempted, he was. In every way. You and I have a high priest in Jesus Christ who can... Fully understand whatever it is you're going through. Are you, you feel misunderstood today? Guess what? Christ was misunderstood. You feel alone today? He knows that. He felt that. You, you, you feel betrayed today? He's aware of that. Whatever it was. You have a high priest that can sympathize. The answer to the gospel is draw near. That's the application, draw near. That's going to involve truth. That's going to involve study. That's going to involve prayer. That's going to involve time spent quietly trying to listen to God. Draw near and find rest for your souls. Treasure the gospel more than anything else and then live in the sufficiency that the gospel provides. We exist to defend the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 
We have been saved. We belong to God. Why? To advance His kingdom, not our own. Everything flows from that. Everything flows from who we are. We've been adopted. We've been taken in as children. Our lives are meant to be overflows of the gospel in all circumstances. Pictures of the gospel. But listen, none of it, none of it, none of it, none of it will make sense until we get settled the gospel. But when you understand the gospel, listen to me, everything makes sense. When you understand the gospel, everything makes sense. That's why he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, For this momentary light affliction is producing us an eternal weight of glory, looking not to what is seen, but what is unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Fixed, and you know, that's why he says in Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he was purchasing a people. In the gospel, listen, there is nothing, believer, there's nothing in your life wasted. That's what the gospel offers. There is nothing in your life that will ever be wasted, and the gospel provides that. And that's what leads us to this table that sits in front of us, the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a reminder of the gospel. That's why Jesus said, as often as you eat and drink this cup, do it what? In remembrance of me. It's reminding us that the high price that was paid to purchase my freedom and your freedom, those of us in here who are believers in Jesus Christ, from sin. Remembering the gospel. And that leads me even to where we're going to be for the next few weeks. You, you see these books that have been laid here on the altar. And we did it for a reason. In, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come forward. And I, I, don't, I, I want you, first of all, to, as an individual, as a family, I'm going to challenge you, all of us, as an individual, as a family, to take one of these books. If you're, if you're here as a family, take one book. We don't have a $20 million budget. We didn't buy everybody an individual book. Take a book as a family. If you're here as an individual, take a book. If you're here as a family, the Bashams, we got a book. I, I want to challenge you to read this book over the next six weeks, one chapter a week. We as a church, we're going to spend the next six weeks together looking at this. And I want to challenge us to be so bold. To ask God how he might use this book in our lives. That, that we would be willing, like Paul said, to live out the gospel for others' sake, no matter what it costs. Because there's a lot of others out there. That... that that, that you would come to God prayerfully, humbly, and ask God, how does this look in my life? How does godliness look in my life? How does it play out in my life, the life of my family? And specifically, specifically in the area of orphans and widows. We're going to look at orphans, and then we're going to look at widows in, in chapter 5. I want to challenge you to be so bold to take this book, Read it one chapter a week. Come in here prepared to discuss it in your small groups. I'll preach on it. Just ask God, humbly ask God, how might this look like in my life? And, and here's the caution. I'm going to tell you on the front end, it's not going to look the same in everybody's lives. And, and, and we're going to get in trouble if we compare ourselves to each other. Because God may not lead me leading you to do something that He leads someone else to do. He may tell some of us to sell everything and give it to the poor. He may impress it on some of our hearts to, to adopt or to foster. It could look like in some of our lives that you just sponsor a child on a monthly basis through compassion. It could be for some of you, I, I would love for us to have an adoption fund here. It could be that you say, look, I'm past bringing kids in my life, but I can, help fund a, I can help fund a fund to help those who are bringing kids into their home. And I'm not talking about a fund that's just for adoption. When you bring a foster child into your home, guess what? That child comes with costs. 
Oftentimes, that, that child doesn't come with a lot of stuff. Karen and I have been blessed to do this a few times, and guess what? Oftentimes, you pick that child up, and you go straight to Walmart, or you go straight to the clothing store. That's just the reality. Wouldn't it be great if us as a church, if we had a fund, and there's an organization what's called Life Song that we can talk about, that'll manage that for us, that'll do all the applications, that'll vet everybody out, but you said, hey, I brought this foster child in. Hey, here's a couple hundred dollars. Go love on that child. Hey, here's a couple hundred dollars. Go take them to Bush Gardens. Go do some stuff with that child. Love on them. Hey, you're adopting? Oh, here's a few thousand dollars. Let us help you adopt. Wouldn't it be great if we had a fund just sitting there for that? It may be God leads some of you to say, hey, I, I, I'll help fund that. It's going to look different in all of our lives. But the question is this, how will we respond ourselves to being orphans and having been adopted by a father at the cost of his son? How will we respond to that? That's the gospel. We were enemies. We, we were the nobodies. We were homeless, helpless spiritually. We had, a, we had a father, his name was Satan, but you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to kill us and destroy us. And yet God crucified His own Son. The ransom was His own Son. That's the question. I could read 1 John 3. I could read 1 John 4. I, I would challenge you to do that for the sake of time. We won't do that. But He says very clearly, How do you, seeing your brother or sister in need, and you turn your back on him? He says, How does the love of God abide in you? The challenge, all I'm asking you, I'm just challenging every one of us as a church. I'm amazed. I sit back and I'm amazed how many families are already, probably 30% of this church has been involved in orphan or foster care in some form or fashion. That, that's amazing at a church of this size. I'm just simply challenging you to ask the Lord, what might your role be? No matter the risk, no matter the cost, Lord, what might you have me to do? If that's you today, if you'd be so bold as to ask that, I'm going to give you a free book. And like I said, we're going to read it over the next six weeks. Read one chapter at a time. It's an easy read. You're going to want to fly through the whole book, but pace yourself. Because here's the reality. If the gospel isn't true, then giving up of yourself in any way, shape, or form makes no sense. But if the gospel's true, it makes all the sense in the world. And the reality is it doesn't make sense not to give up of yourself if the gospel is true.